This is not party politics. And I think the difficulty is that people will define us as being political whenever what they say is we're being technical. We have written a paper which is not in any way political. It is an attempt to do a health to set out the parameters for a health impact assessment. Brexit. Who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks, let alone months or years. The uncertainty is high. In the face of that, you'd hope that the government was doing all it could to plan for any eventuality, let alone a massive country-altering one like suddenly crashing out without a deal. But two guests we have today think that they've just not been doing that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and just now I spoke to Martin McKee, Professor of Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and David Nicholl, Consultant Neurologist and new foe of Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's extremely difficult to plan because of the many, many uncertainties we really have no idea of exactly what will pan out. The government currently seems to be determined to move to a relationship which is as distant as possible from the European Union to a level that is unprecedented in the last 200 years for any country. Even North Korea have better relations than being anticipated at the future in the future. So this is really uncharted territory. The problem that we have is that ministers are constantly giving reassurances that all will be well. And their basic hypothesis, their basic argument seems to be that um, we will find a way to get through. We survived the blitz, we survived the war, well, many people didn't, of course, survive the war, but somehow or other, this British spirit will help us uh, to get through. But whenever you try to push them on the detail, they are completely incapable of giving any serious answer at all. And we know from their leaked documents, and there are more and more leaked documents coming out, that this facade that they are presenting to the world of all being under control in some way, and there will be some way of doing things, is frankly complete and total nonsense. The question then arises, do they actually believe this themselves? Or are they being dishonest? And that's the difficulty uh, when we really don't know that, because if they actually do believe what they're saying, then we're probably in even more trouble. Mm. Um, if they're just lying, um, and uh, then perhaps they, they will find some way of mitigating something. But it's really very difficult to say. Mm. A lot of um, the detail is, is really important here. Those kind of cross-border collaborations that we have going on, the, the various treaties that we are parties of because of our, our place in the EU. Now, one of them, if we kind of get into some of those specifics, is around moving radioactive materials across borders. And obviously, we need to do that to fuel lots of treatment within the NHS. Um, could you sort of tell us in this microcosm what, what's going on there? I raised the issue of radioactive isotopes 
right at the beginning. I wrote an editorial in the BMJ, which raised concerns about this. And I had worked very closely with colleagues in the Royal College of Radiologists and the British Nuclear Medicine Society. So I knew that what I was saying was correct. I checked it with a lot of people. The difficulty we have is with uh, technetium 99M, one particular isotope used in diagnosis, which has a very short half-life. And it's also in very short supply because it's only made in a few reactors worldwide. And if one of those reactors goes uh, offline, then there is a shortage, as there was in about 2008 when Europe did face a problem. We are part of a network uh, to ensure that the limited supplies do get to the right people. That's one problem. The second issue is, of course, transporting them across borders. After I wrote my piece, there was a splash in the front page of the Evening Standard, uh, which raised the issue about treatment, diagnosis and treatment of cancer patients. And the government said that uh, everything was under control and I was fear-mongering. I submitted a freedom of information request to the Department for Exiting the EU, and at that time they were still responding to such requests. And they confirmed to me that they had held no meetings on this topic, and uh, they had no papers on it, but they helpfully uh, provided me with the press release which said that I didn't know what I was talking about because they had it all under control. I think that tells you where some of the problems lie. They had a rehearsal recently where they tried to bring in some isotopes into East Midlands Airport. The only airport in the UK that actually has the handling capacity is Coventry, which does a lot of freight work uh, because these need specialised handling equipment. Uh, you need to have drivers who are qualified and, and certified to transport isotopes. And the exercise at East Midlands did not go well because of the challenge of getting the timing right. This is a very, very complex process. And I'm afraid until we see otherwise, I we can have no confidence that the government really has got it under control. I think the difficulty about doing, uh, when we look at many of these th things, is that even if you can find some sort of what seems like a practical solution, by leaving the EU, you may have lost the legal mechanism. So a uh, political journalist uh, recently was looking at movement across the Irish border, which is particularly prob problematic. Health has been a, a key issue in terms of bringing people together. It's been funded by the peace and reconciliation rather than the health budget from the European Union. And that depends on movement of all sorts of things. Blood, which may not be able to move across the border. Mm. Narcotic, morphine for people with heart attacks. But above all, data. And the journalist asked the authorities in Dublin and Belfast for um, whether there would be a problem with this. And they were reassured that there would be no problem. And then they asked, but can you point me to the legal mechanism that will allow you to do that? And the response came back that we expect all of the individual authorities and organisations to find their own way through that. And in fact, the uh, department in Belfast pointed to a bit of legislation in the General Data Protection Regulation that didn't apply. They didn't understand it. Uh, so I, I think constantly we hear these reassurances but if you ask the killer question, the four words which are absolutely key, show me the detail or show me the legal mechanism, then it all falls apart. And we have had so many reassurances that we'll be able to trade under WTO rules mm -hmm. or GATT Article 24 will work. And, and this is where, unfortunately, one has to conclude that the motivation may not it may it may not just be ignorance in fact because these things have been pointed out so many times 
to the politicians that keep saying them that they must by now know that they are wrong. They've been pointed out by former director generals of the World Trade Organization, by experts in international trade, and they keep saying them again and again and again, but they never, ever get into the detail. So, Martin, you were there talking about the importance of details. And actually, we're joined on the line now by David Nichols, who has been involved in some of the the planning for um for Brexit. David, could you tell us how you were involved in, in Yellowhammer? Sure. I, I mean, I think, in fact, the detail really does matter. Um, so basically, the Royal College of Physicians at the beginning of the year, so this is early January, uh, approached different specialty societies looking for volunteers on behalf of the Department of Health to be in contact with the Department of Health to help with planning for uh, no deal, basically, given that at that time we were due to leave on March 29th. Um, and, um, uh, you know, someone had to do it. Uh, so I, you know, uh, put up my hand, um, and then I heard nothing, um, and then uh, would have been about 13th of March. Um, then I, I got uh, an email uh, from the Department of Health, uh, you know, with a uh, file marked strictly confidential. Um, do you accept to, to read this, basically? Uh, and you know, I said yes. I hadn't signed a non-disclosure agreement, and I wasn't, you know, not subject to the Fish and Secrets Act. Uh, and I looked at the file. So in one sense, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as I thought it could be, but it was bad enough. So it wasn't every drug in neurology. It was specifically drugs with epilepsy, uh, neuropathic pain, uh, and others. So around about 20 different medications, uh, one of which was intravenous. Um, and uh, I, so the, I had to list a plan of mitigation. It was a traffic light system. So essentially red would be there would be a risk to life. Uh, and then amber would be... Um, not life-threatening, but uh, would sort of cause destruction. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, I, I really struggled. I can still remember writing in the file, you know, for, um, you know, a well-known drug used for neuropathic pain. Uh, this is an amber, as in people won't die. Uh, but you know, it's a borderline red uh, um, because, you know, they would affect thousands of patients, basically. The week before we were due to leave, I got another email. I'll never forget. It was half past five on a Thursday. Um, and they changed the bloody password um, and hadn't told me. And it was unbelievably stressful. knowing <laughs> I had just lost 16 hours waiting until that civil servant came in the following day. Um, and, uh, you know, I just had enough. I just thought, this is utterly bonkers. There was nothing about this was commercially sensitive. Uh, this was something which, you know, uh, I should be having conversations with my colleagues about this. Mm. And in fact, the analogy I would make is this. If you remember last week, there was that nuclear accident in, in Russia um, uh, and you know several people died and the doctors were very upset because the state didn't tell them um, uh, that there was a nuclear accident. I think this is no different. <laughs> the state, as in the United Kingdom, is failing to properly communicate to healthcare professionals about which drugs there's problems about, which plans are being placed, and it's just being dealt with a very select group of people. Fundamentally, this goes to the core of trust that you have in government. But when you have a government minister like Michael Gove, uh, you know, immediately respond when Yellow Camera comes out that this is uh, the worst case scenario. That is untrue. OK, and that, that's just false. Um, so, you know, I think he should be challenged to explain why he said that when it's very clear in the Sunday Times report this before the following week that uh, it is not the worst case scenario. Further than that, we know 
uh, of little bits of the worst-case scenario. Uh, when you've had people like uh, Stephen Hammond, who was a, a junior health minister, who back in February, um, you know, reported that they were stockpiling body bags in the event of a no-deal Brexit. I mean, just unbelievable. That uh, I mean, I find it incredible that we even talking about this uh, in a so smoothly civilized society that we're thinking we need to stockpile body bags. Martin. No, I think um, you make a very good point about the secrecy. The Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, frequently says that if everyone does what they need to do, and yet he hasn't been able to tell us what we need to do. Uh, and it, it does keep coming back to these sort of generalities. And, and also where plans have been tested out. I mean, I think the uh, last month, uh, Newsnight um, was reporting about the uh, you know, dry run they tried for radioisotopes. Uh, which unfortunately didn't work very well. Um, so, you know, the, the point is you should be speaking to your experts, i.e. your royal colleges. You should be taking their advice. You should be adjusting your plans on a continuous basis. And then you should be retesting them out. Th they aren't doing anything. Well, I think this is a very good point because politicians have, uh, some politicians have talked about Brexit as being of uh, comparable complexity to the moon landings. But we shouldn't forget that the moon landings were made by Apollo 11. And before that, there was Apollos 1 to 10 plus Gemini and Mercury and a massive amount of rehearsal and testing and going round the moon before you landed on it. In effect, what they're trying to do is to launch a Saturn V into space with no idea as to whether the moon is actually made of rock or whether it's made of green cheese or even what phase of the moon it is or where it is in relation to earth oh absolutely and, and, and in fact a huge amount we've learned from apollo one where obviously all the astronauts died yeah exactly so i think i think it is the the secrecy um and also as you say um we have known from the very beginning and, and you know some of us were saying at the very outset there actually are no solutions to these problems um and both you and i know about the situation on in, in the island of ireland uh, sadly unfortunately far too many english politicians seem to be totally unaware and we did actually see that in a, a not just the, the politicians when people in the street were given a map of the island of ireland and asked to draw a line as to where they thought the border was which was um, tragic at the same time as being rather amusing but uh, i think the uh, that is an area where there is no solution and, and in fact the the backstop that theresa may got given her red lines was the only possibility even that wasn't ideal uh, and uh, so the uh, the thought that we can continue to keep looking for some answers when we know that they they cannot happen. I think what also is really rather depressing is the fundamental dishonesty. I mentioned uh, that we've got the, the claims about GATT Article 24, we've got the claims that there's free movement across the Swiss-French border. Well, I cross the French-Swiss French border quite frequently and I remember one prominent Labour Leave member of Parliament being photographed against a large brick building uh, that said on it Zoll Duane and then said look there, are, there is no border infrastructure here and you feel like the pantomime where you say well look behind you what do you think this is uh, and when you get that level of frank dishonesty I think it is it is very difficult and then of course we're now oh, absolutely. Well, just this morning I've just done an interview with um, a member of the health Select committee in Victoria Derbyshire who was saying that you know that uh, um, that's you uh, is the worst case scenario, and I had to say, well, you're wrong. <laughs> that's just not true.
Uh, I, I, yes, exactly. And there are so many things that are repeated again and again. So I was listening to Dominic Rabb on the radio this morning and he was talking about progress being made in the negotiations. And there, and there are some MPs who are sceptical about Brexit but seem to be believing that. But we all know absolutely clearly there isn't even a British negotiating team in place at the minute. So how can they possibly be making progress in the negotiations? Absolutely. And, and, and Philip Hammond said that this morning on the Today programme, which kind of backs up what I'm saying is that actually the government is winging it on uh, pharmaceutical uh, plans and Yellowhammer. Well, I think we need to be quite clear. The government is lying, repeatedly yes. lying. Now, um, I, what, I do wonder whether some of them really believe what they're saying, um, which is the most worrying scenario, or whether they are fully aware that they're lying and then they, they will try and find, they will attempt to mitigate it. But, but I think we shouldn't also forget the over 3 million EU citizens who are in limbo. We had the situation where Pretty Patel said that she would end free movement without engaging her mind at all in the matter and then being told that she couldn't do that. And I, I think it's this sort of shooting from the hip, appealing to the tabloid newspapers with no concept of the law. I'm in College Green at the moment and I... I brought one of my favourite books, Don. I don't know if you read Anthony Beaver's book on D-Day, which I think is I the classic book on logistics and planning, mm. okay? Um, and obviously that's military planning, uh, not civilian contingency planning. Where, you know, civilian contingency planning, you're, you're not expecting any harm. Um, whereas, you know, <laughs> Air Chief Marshal Lee Mallory was telling Eisenhower, you know, that literally thousands of French are going to die on the first day from bombing. Is that something that's acceptable? You know, that was a risk that we took um, but that's war. But <laughs> I think for the point, peace, which uh, is why the only question which I think needs asking to all these politicians at the moment, which is the one I asked Dicker Rees-Mogg, is what level of mortality rate are you willing to accept? And this is very much, And they don't like it. But that is, you know, that, how much do you want this? And that's very much what we were saying in our BMJ analysis piece. It is abundantly clear that people will die. We don't know how many people will die, but we've identified a substantial number of mechanisms by which people will die. And, and we, it's not zero. That's the and it's not zero. We can be confident that it's not zero. And uh, we need the politicians to start addressing that. But I thought that the way that you were treated by him was frankly appalling. Uh, but uh, I think on behalf of all of us, thank you for speaking out. Yeah, appalling, but not surprising. Um, David, if I can sort of turn to practicalities now a little bit. You know, you were involved in um, Yellowhammer. You saw all the drugs that will be affected. How? Well, just for neurology. Just, just for, for neurology, neurology obviously. So it literally is like one piece of a very large jigsaw puzzle. But you're a neurologist. So I was just wondering how you're taking that into your practice. Is that affecting the way you're thinking about prescribing to patients? Uh, not at the moment. It's been more a difficult conversation about, uh, I mean, what do, you, uh, what do I as a neurologist say to patients when they come and see me in clinic? Uh, and after that, you know, that last week, or was it the week, the week before, when the, uh, you know, the Royal College and 17 other Royal Colleges uh, wrote to the Prime Minister, I had a string of patients in clinic, you know, asking me, um, uh, you know, about um, problems with drugs, basically. Um, so, you know, do, am I meant to lie to them and say, oh, it's all OK? Uh, or am I meant to say, well, actually, I saw the spreadsheet and I know you're on one of the drugs that there's a problem? 
I think that if I may just pick up on that a bit, one of the, the difficulties that people fail to recognize is that if the country was really doing incredibly well, if the economy was flourishing and everything was fine, these things, we might find some way of getting through them. But we know that medicine supplies are precarious at the best of times. We're seeing the problems with HRT, which are not due to Brexit, but that's the background, the EpiPens. Um, there have been problems with antihypertensives, problems with a lot of things. And these things only we only manage to scrape through because we have all of the provisions that we get from the European Union. Similarly with food supplies, if nobody in this country had a problem with food, it would be fine. But we have very large numbers of people who are dependent on food banks. We have very large numbers of people in poverty. Um, small businesses are struggling for lots of reasons that are not to do with Brexit. But when you add Brexit on top of them, uh, many of them will go under. So I think that this is the oh, challenge. We, we think of, uh, you know, you think of patients safety you always think about the swiss cheese model of uh, error basically well you know this has got so many bloody holes in it you know <laughs> there's, no, there's that, no cheese left I, I think that's it so both of you are very outspoken about this issue um and i know a number of uh doctors out there who are practicing and facing patients day to day are worried about talking out about brexit about being political within their surgeries. We're, we're not being political. We're absolutely, this is not politics. This is not party politics. And I think the difficulty is that people will define us as being political whenever what they say is we're being technical. We have written a paper which is not in any way political. It is an attempt to do a health, to set out the parameters for a health impact assessment. And I think this is the way in which you often get, you know, some neoliberal think tanks and others with shady funding who say, oh, you're being political. No, we're not. Um, we're not saying what, the, well, we might have a view as to what the choice would be, but we just simply are doing the, in my case, the epidemiology, the policy analysis, the politics, you know, how individual people vote is up to them. This, but So we must not in any way allow this to be portrayed as being political. We are certainly not being political. Great, thank you. And David, do you have anything to say about speaking out? Uh, it's very noisy here. <laughs> it's just pretty lively, I don't know if you can hear it in the background. Um, but I, I think keeping asking that one question to all those that support an ideal Brexit is what level of patient harm are they willing to accept? And show me the detail as well. Show me the detail. Show me the legislative yeah. mechanism. How many deaths and show me the detail. Absolutely. Great. Well, uh, David, Martin, thank you so much for coming in and uh, hopefully lighting a fire a bit under our <laughs> listeners and, and making them speak out. Um, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. In the debate about Brexit, increasingly we're hearing about the impact on health in the UK and in increasingly doomed ways. But what about across the rest of Europe? Over our time in the EU, we've built up incredibly intricate, interconnected relationships with our European colleagues and institutions. And so the health of the public in all of those countries that make up the rest of the EU is bound to be affected too. To find out about that, I spoke to Natasha Azapardi-Muscat, president of the European Public Health Association, who's been trying to work out what Brexit means for the whole of European public health. So I think just put very simply, if anyone had any doubts about the extent to which the European Union is involved in health policy and health systems, 
the Brexit um, saga, the Bakel process, has clearly highlighted the extent to which the European Union, the common market and the political union has over the past years since the Treaty of Rome affected so, so many aspects of our daily um, life where health is concerned. And this um, obviously goes more broadly into issues around food systems and environmental health, where the EU has quite a competence, but also in terms of the, of the health care more proximally. So with medicines, medical devices, isotopes, blood, blood products, and then even arrangements for people traveling across borders. I think that um, the withdrawal agreement had begun to put at least um, some sense of how countries were going to continue to work for the transition period. And I think many of us were somewhat hopeful that this transition period then would serve to pave the way for what would happen after and would make it clear that there was going to be so much loss to citizens and patients that it would make no sense to depart from what is working. I think in case of a possible no-deal Brexit, um, there is a real fear that we will see uh, spikes in mortality in the UK, but perhaps not only in the UK. History has taught us that whenever there is um, uh, uh, a political transition um, because of many situations that arise, not least sometimes the uncertainty and people not being sure of their supply lines, um, where to go, what to do, what to refer, um, brief periods of austerity. Our history books in public health are there open for everyone to see that these situations cost lives. Thank you. Um, I mean, what we heard uh, from Martin and David earlier was essentially this process of unravelling our connection with Europe is incredibly complex. Um, and yet the government's only looking at us at the most sort of superficial level. And when we press them for details on how anything's going to change, they, they seem to have lacked that or lacked even looking at that. Um, I wonder if you have any examples that you could tell us about how we're sort of fundamentally interconnected uh, with Europe um, that would help sort of highlight some of that complexity? Sure. Um, I think one of the areas where there is a very clear and strong European interconnectedness is in the area of medicines and medicines regulation. So, for example, um, I've followed stories in the British media about families uh, being uncertain whether they're going to be able to continue to supply, um, uh, to be able to, to source the, their uh, rare um, disease treatment medicine for, for specific cases. But even um, commoner um, uh, medicines such as insulin apparently seem to be of concern. 
Well, there is a reciprocal side to that, in that a number of countries, because the UK has been such a giant in the pharmaceutical industry um, globally, but even in Europe, uh, have depended for many years on a pipeline of medicines from the UK. Um, uh, and nobody really has the faintest idea what is going to happen after Brexit. And on one level, um, uh, people want to believe that, uh, that some solution will be found. But technically, these are very, very complex. And it's unlikely that if a solution hasn't been found over the past three years, it's going to be, be found in 30 days or in a few hours in case of a no-deal Brexit. So I think that is one, one area. Then, of course... Um, there are some other countries where you have quite a large number of British citizens um, living, working, residing in southern Europe, for example. And likewise, you've got um, European nationals who um, are traveling, working, residing in, in the UK. And there again, um, it, it is quite complex. And, and of course, eventually, if goodwill prevails um, all round, uh, these things could probably be worked out on a bilateral basis. But it takes time even to carry out negotiations. So what is going to happen in the meantime? There is, you know, a, a real fear and a real concern. And, and then, for example, um, uh, more, perhaps more, more of a loss even for uh, the European community, uh, Britain has been a great leader in health, in medicine, in research. Let's just take, by way of example, the European reference networks um, that are going to, to that are functioning in the European Union now, or about 24 of those. Um, a, a, a sizable number had a strong contribution for Britain, or were even being led by Britain, and now there's. The process taking place to either transfer the leadership. So um, I, I've always uh, uh, said to colleagues in, in public health in Europe that we will uh, we will feel also the, the loss of of the British influence, British policy making that has helped to develop um, health and public health policy in Europe in a number of areas taking, for example, even the European Centre for Disease Control, where the UK was a, a very strong player, even in the initial years, um, in helping to set up that network, which now um, uh, is so important for, for sharing information and, and uh, control measures uh, in, in a number of communicable diseases. For example, with the measles outbreaks, once again, the resurgence of measles, an institution like the European Centre for Disease Control obviously plays an important part for EU countries to be able to coordinate their response mechanisms. Absolutely, and uh, obviously um, viruses don't respect uh, country borders, so that's something that we need to work closely with our um, our colleagues uh, in Europe about. And one thing that um, has become apparent is that even simple things like transfer of patient information, patient data out of Europe into the UK um, 
will be massively affected by Brexit because of you know European legislation on data protection. This is an issue which is uh, um, um, which needs to be worked out. Basically, um, yes, automatically Britain will take on the status of being a third country. But at the same time, um, the general data protection regulation um, does uh, uh, allow for personal data to be transferred uh, with the patient's consent and where there is the vital interest. So I think this is really a good example of uh, um, uh, the, the, the manner in which even areas that uh, um, uh, may uh, at first glance seem to be um, sort of uh, provided for because there is a provision in the regulation that allows you to, to make exceptions, so to say. Um, it's just even going to add an additional bureaucratic hurdle. And everything costs time and money. And when you don't have a simple automa automatic system, then um, uh, there's going to be a repercussion. Take, for example, another area which uh, uh, can be of concern, which is uh, the mutual recognition of uh, qualifications. I mean, we do know that the British NHS is uh, quite reliant on a pipeline of doctors and nurses um, from EU countries. Uh, the reciprocal side to that is that um, Britain for many years has acted as a fertile training and exposure ground for EU nationals from other countries to spend a period of time providing service in Britain, but also gaining exposure to some of the, the top medical centres um, in, in Europe. And one could try to imagine that if common sense and goodwill prevails, then it would be in everyone's interest to allow those qualifications, which are not going to change overnight, to continue to be recognised. But there is a European framework that regulates all of this, and we haven't seen much common sense and goodwill prevailing that gives us the confidence that these kind of barriers can be um, uh, overcome uh, quickly or easily. And at the end of the day, it will be individual citizens who are going to have to face additional layers of bureaucracy. And somewhere down the line, it's always the ones with least means who are most vulnerable, who are going to be worst affected because a, a doctor seeking to move to the UK would probably still be able to do so through a more tortuous lengthy route, which might uh, require additional examinations, fees paid to the GMC, etc. Um, but at the end of the day, it's that patient waiting somewhere in a British NHS hospital that is short of staff that is going to be facing the brunt of that decision. Mm. Um, Natasha, thank you so much for, for explaining that. It does sound like uh, 
from your European point of view, you're you're very concerned not only about the UK but but about Europe as well. So uh, we hope for a for a decent resolution to this. Thank you, Duncan, for making the time, and we will continue, of course, to be fully open to our colleagues in Britain um, to be widely engaged as a research academic and the practitioner public health community. So this won't be the last we hear of Brexit. We'll be back in the coming weeks with more. That's it for this podcast, but in our next episode, we'll be looking at domestic legislation this time and a new modelling study which looks at the impact of attacks on the BMI of the nation. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that. And if you're there anyway, you might as well rate or review us. It really helps other people to find us, so we really appreciate you doing that. If you're interested in feeding back anything to the podcast, go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out how to get in touch with me. It's really good to know what you're enjoying or if you have any questions or anything else that we should be talking about. So, as I said, that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.